Welcome to the Politics of Everything. I'm Amber Danes, your host and podcast producer. This is a half hour of power, a podcast dropping every week where I unpack the politics of everything, from money to motherhood, nutrition to narcissism, startups to secularism, the environment, quality, and much, much more. Our guests are seasoned in the field or topic of their choice, even if you've not heard of them yet. This is a non-partisan show. So while I love exploring varied views and get a buzz from a healthy debate of ideas, this is not a purely blue, white, green program. Please subscribe, tune in and enjoy the politics of everything. Jackie Clark and I met around a decade ago when I was media training in one of the big four consultancy firms in Sydney. Today, she's a trusted advisor, board member, executor and veteran business executive. For decades, she's worked with some of Australia's wealthiest families to help them preserve, protect and grow their wealth and navigate the challenges that money brings. She has a new book out and that has a powerful yet blunt message. Take control of your money, avoid common financial pitfalls, and prepare for whatever life throws at you. In Stop Worrying About Money, Jackie, Australia's best-kept money secret, delivers smart and surefire guidance that will see you through life's financial ups and downs. You'll learn to clarify your goals, values, and be upfront and honest about your money, both with yourself and with others. Like Jackie herself, this book proves to be a very practical and hands-on guide to dealing with life's most common and challenging financial obstacles. And I've enjoyed reading the book, and I love its no-nonsense advice. And I think most of us who are not money masters have been waiting for this, particularly as the cost of living rises affect us more and more every day. So welcome to the Politics of Everything, Jackie. Thanks, Amber. It's great to reconnect with you and I'm excited to join you today on the Politics of Everything. Go to zencaster.com forward slash pricing and use my code, the Politics of Everything 30, all one word, and you'll get 30% off your first three months of Zencaster Professional. I want you to have the same easy experiences I do for all my podcasting and content needs. It's time to share your story. Yes, and congratulations on the book. It's a big thing writing a book. So yes, well done on that. And obviously such a big topic. I do want to cast your mind back to when you were growing up. Did you always want to be in sort of finance and I guess accounting or any of those worlds as a kid or did you have a different dream? Well, actually, I did, but there is a there is a prequel, if you like. I first wanted to be a meteorologist because I loved the weather. Uh, then I thought I'd be a teacher until I realised very quickly that teachers didn't get paid very well. So I clearly had a bit of an entrepreneurial spirit. And from a really early age, I worked out that it seemed like everyone needed an accountant. And I thought, that's the ticket. That's exactly what I'm going to do. Excellent. And obviously you're pretty good at it because you made a whole amazing career out of it for a number of decades, of course, and that's how we met. So changing topics a little bit onto today's topic, I am really fascinated by the timing of this book because it seems like it's perfect timing because globally that cost of living crisis issue seems to be everywhere. And, you know, most of us a little bit sort of, you know, frazzled by what it's going to look like for the next six months, 12 months, five years. How can we take stock of where we are at financially faster? Are there some top tips and examples that you can give us if we're kind of in panic mode at the moment? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question, Amber. And I think the first most important thing is, and I really start the book with this, which is really understanding what your open the front door costs are at home or really getting clear on what baseline costs are for you. So it's, it's pretty easy to get lost in 
the overwhelm right now. And so I try and bring people back to sort of what's right in front of you, what can you control right now, which is exactly the money that is being spent as you open your front door at home. And I'm talking everything from obviously your rent or your mortgage, but electricity, your subscriptions, like you name it. They're probably the first things that I would direct people to. But after that, and probably wrapping around getting your house in order, if you like, is really ensuring that you're not committing those three, what I consider to be biggest mistakes with money. The first one being the wearing and driving your money, which is essentially probably directed more at, I'd say, the under 35s, but quite true of the over 35s as well. Depending on if if you're into that stuff. But yeah, I think I know what you're going to say, but do share that with us. Yeah. Well, the main thing is that uh, people tend to lease cars rather than buy them. And the leasing Mm. is actually a function of cash flow, which is it's actually easier to afford a lease than it is to buy a car outright. But the question is, is that car within your means? So I don't mean, is it okay to manage on your monthly cash flow? Is it actually within your means in terms of your entire wealth? So does it actually tie into a financial goal? Or just a vanity goal (laughs) for some people. And, you know, there is a bit of keeping up with the Joneses or I I joke about the Kardashians for some people, even if it's just buying the latest clothes. It's really easy to fall into that trap. I know I do from time to time, but then I get really sort of, I get clear about how I'm trying to live and say, no, I don't need that. Mm, yeah. yeah, I think that's great. And I think most of us could take that advice on and do something about it right here, right now, which is kind of where a lot of people might be at um, with their mm. own financial stresses. I've got a question for you around this, I guess, your c- career previously to sort of, you know, being the entrepreneur you are now. Mm. Coming from a financially savvy family, people might have grown up with wealth and over generations you know, I feel like sometimes those money lessons are shared and passed down and they've got great advisors and they have a suite of scaffolding to really help them. Is there some sort of difference that you've observed between that and say the newly wealthy person, particularly if they're younger, who may not know those unspoken rules of managing their money better? And I'm sort of thinking back to when I was sort of sort of staying my career and reading Rich Dad, Poor Dad, that book comes to mind, which really from people of my era was a really motivational book for people to think about their financial lives and their financial independence differently because of their background. Does, does that polarizing advice stack up now or is this something which we kind of assume to be true but is not always true? Look, so I think Rich Dad, Poor Dad was a great book for its time. I think we've passed that in some respects now because I think the reality is there is more wealth globally and I, I think it it is not necessarily the case now. I find that with generations of wealth and those who've grown up in families of wealth, and I'm going to use the word lazy, which might be a bit on the strong side, but the sense, if you've got a family of people around you who've earned the money, what what gets you out of bed every day is a little bit tricky and perhaps you lack motivation in the same way. So you may not have the entrepreneurial skills that your father or grandfather or mother or has. Uh, so that's actually quite a steep learning curve. I think one of the most important things is also financial literacy. People can talk about money around you, which is a, is a good start, but actually you need to develop or work on your financial literacy by doing things with money. And sometimes when you've come from money, you don't necessarily have access to it in the same way, for example, you might be receiving an allowance, you might be given cars, you might be given homes, all these types of things. So there's actually a bit of a lazy element, if you like, to those who've come from money. And I think it's quite different to new money where you need to build a network of people around you. And I do talk quite a lot about a personal finance village. One of the things I see that wealthy families do quite well is have a great network of people around them or a network of trusted advisors to support them. 
That doesn't necessarily translate to the next generation, though. Mm. And, and you would know, Amber, like if you've got a mate from university, yeah. um, they're your age, they come up with you. But when you're 65 or 75 or even 80, they're the same age as you, if not older. Yes. And how does your next generation or how do your kids learn or build, to be honest, build a relationship with them? Absolutely. No, you're right. And I think that's the challenge because I think a lot of people assume you have to have money to make money and it can be true. But, you know, there's plenty of examples of famous people who if they had done nothing but put the money in the bank, they would have been wealthier with their inheritance than if all the business decisions they might have made because, you know, they've started with such a strong base that they assume they can't fail. Yeah, and it's interesting, like someone like Warren Buffett will openly admit that they've been very lucky on a few investments. Mm. And there's been lots of dogs, if you like, along the way, but he will openly admit that if it wasn't for half a dozen tops, um, they wouldn't be where they are today. Isn't that incredible? Yeah, mm. and I think I always think of people like him when I, I yes. think of money advice. <laughs> there's yes. some gurus out there, but of course, you He's know, wonderful. all advice um, has to come with some caveat that you need to do your own research and so forth. So I think it's always good for people just to look widely for their advice um, yes. and, and examples of success. Actually, Look, I love, so, sorry, Amber, sorry, I love the yeah. comment you made then about research as well. One of the yes. things I speak really strongly about is ensuring that people do their research. So it's really easy to take a passing comment from a friend who said, oh, I invested in X or you should do Y. I'm thinking but crypto. I, well, it's <laughs> a great that, example. That I'm recent things, phenomenon. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I think of other things like um, when Afterpay shares were hitting the market, everyone's saying buy Afterpay, buy Afterpay. But the most important thing is, A, you do your research or your own due diligence, but invest in things you know or you understand. Don't go mm. in sort of halfway with, you know, off the recommendation of a friend. I think it's really important that you do your own research. I just wanted to pick up on that. Yeah, point. no, I think that's important. And I think a little bit of, it's hard because everyone's got a different risk appetite, I guess. But yeah, I, I remember, yeah, a lot of people giving me tips and so forth, but it just wasn't in my comfort zone. I think you've got to be happy with the assets that you, asset class that you're investing in and, you know, know what your risk appetite is as well. Yeah. For so many people, ideas of financial independence and freedom go hand in hand. However, obviously our incomes vary. I've touched on risk aptitudes varying. Mine's pretty in the middle. I always thought I had a high risk appetite, but I think as I got older, it's got less as I'm heading towards <laughs> retirement and finding solid opportunities to make and save money and not equal for people. How do you advise clients to manage their money no matter their income? Like what's the tried and true formulas, ideas and tips? Because obviously it's very different if you're earning a million dollars a year say, to earning $100,000 a year. Well, it is, except that it does require the same level of discipline because what you find, there's you know a common phenomenon, you earn more, you spend more. And so things like expense creep really come into people's lives. So the person on the million dollars might be as financially stressed as the person on $100,000. So I'll just sort of make that comment at the outset. But I think just going back to the start of your question, which is pretty loaded, financial independence to me is one thing, but freedom is a way of life. So financial freedom is something quite different to financial independence. And I think that's um, how you live in terms of financial freedom. But just in terms of where you go from here is about setting financial goals because I think if you start at the top with a goal, then that's your North Star or guidance to how you make meaningful adjustments to your expenses so that whether you are on the million or the $100,000, you can actually say this is fits within my lifestyle that I can make this work. You know, And I would say setting financial goals at the outset, starting with reducing non-tax deductible debt 
would be a priority. Uh, people use credit cards. If they've got any before, buy now, pay later arrangements, get off those. You want to make a priority of paying those things down to reduce actually stress and anxiety that I think comes from earning money. So there's a lot of pressure associated with earning money. It, t- it comes with responsibility. Absolutely. And I think, you know, when the times are good, it's easier to feel like it'll ne- the tap will never stop. But of course, that's not always the case. People lose yeah. jobs, people get unwell. You know, there are, there are divorces, there are big major life events, which, you know, you can't always plan for. And, and I guess that rainy day idea, which most of our parents would have shared with us of having some money set aside is always handy, but maybe not something we talk about that much these days. It's not very sexy. No, it's true, but I think the reality is, and, and I think the, the middle part of my book is really dedicated to these life's ups and downs. Like if you've been through something like a divorce, which is pretty common these days, that can be a life-changing event in more than one way. You know, I'd say it's the best, best and worst thing that happened to me, but I certainly lost all of the wealth that I've accumulated up to the age of 40 at that stage. And mm. that's that's quite alarming for someone if you're 20 or 25 going into that, you know, seeing that stage of life down the track absolutely uh, yeah. yeah like you say you can only control sometimes you know certain things but I guess if you've got some good uh, sort of ideas around money as well and how you might you know plan for for those events it, it might actually help you um, no matter what yeah. stages of life define our financial priority sometimes you know it's the time for spending on life experiences I'm thinking post-COVID we all we wanted to do was go on holidays um, yes. that was my thing or studying go back and retraining there's a time for saving obviously buying properties retirement planning etc it's all very boring sometimes how can we make it a little bit fun and gamify it so it doesn't feel like we're never rewarding ourselves unless you know it's planned or we can afford it because some people would feel like they could never afford anything and that they you know all they're doing is is getting by well I think the best look I find I get a lot of energy from planning ahead look everyone's different but I do have a five-year horizon generally on my life so I'm looking at a five-year timeline and saying what are the things I'd like to achieve financially and non-financially across that five-year window and so this is where that sort of goal setting and planning comes into it and I think the fun part about it is if you're designing your life over that timeline, what are the things that you want to achieve? What do you want to change about the work that you do? What do you want to change about the way you do your work? Are you looking to take a sabbatical? Are you looking to learn a new skill? Obviously, holidays come into this. All these things require a fair bit of planning. I think the fun part too is, you know, I mentioned to people, if your income's not enough to support this, then you maybe need to consider a side hustle or another business, something that might supplement your income to help you achieve that goal. So I, th- I do think you can get a lot of energy because you want it to be a bit of a reward for yourself, don't you? Like when Absolutely. You, yeah, like it's like anything. If there's no thing. kind of cherry on top or you feel like, you know, it's overwhelming, I think, you know, in my, in my past, in my 20s, you know, sometimes if I felt like, oh, it's all too hard, I would actually go and spend more money, which is counterproductive. I would not do that now but and get into more debt, you know, put more things on the credit card because, you know, you're feeling so bad about your situation. You figure, oh, well stuff it I'll just continue as I am it reminds me of the diet scenario where you're being really good and then you check yourself (laughs) on the scales and you're like oh that's it like I'm having chocolate I'm done I'm done here and I think that happens with money too people go along a a classic one I hear people say is but you know they're going really well and then the insurance bill arrived oh yeah yeah, or the car engine yeah, dies and close up it, your yeah. whole plan. But <laughs> yeah. I think that the the way to do this successfully is you look out five years, but you come back to right here and now and get back to knowing what your baseline costs are at home, so that there are no surprises over the twelve months. And you know, continually you'll be able to refresh and review that to make sure that you're actually on track 
for your goals. And I do think the goals should be fun things. It's not just about spending money, no. but it's about living that life that you want. And look, I know you've got a whole you know chapter dedicated to aiming to be financially freer. And obviously you mentioned that that looks different for different people as well. Mm. You know, some people it's about having no debt. Other people just need to have you know, enough passive income so that if they, you know, took some time off or they couldn't work, they could actually survive for a little bit and not be in debt. It looked different to different people. But I do love the piece in there where you kind of mentioned that people who have more money, even if they're ridiculously wealthy, sometimes don't feel very financially free, which is interesting. And it comes down to this idea of enough, I think, sometimes. Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm always fascinated by the magic number that people would feel wealthy at. But, you know, it sounds like some people... Like you say, they just buy the bigger boat or the better house or whatever. Yes, there's interesting because there's this concept, I guess, life of abundance. But a life of abundance, if you you walked on the street and you picked up a homeless person and you brought them to your home, <laughs> they would be quite overwhelmed. Yeah. Yeah. And so More I than think have. we have we have so much these days. We have so much to consume and I mean from a social media perspective, but right through to how we eat, what we mm-hmm. eat, the activities we undertake. I look at my kids at school compared to what it was like for us at school. There's so much opportunity and choice. The hardest part sometimes is making choice. And I think that's why having a lot of money can be overwhelming if you are able to control it. Um, because, you know, The Paradox of Choice is a great book I read um, not that long ago, but I really love that book because I think you get to a stage in your life where you have set yourself up nicely that it is the paradox of choice. So when you get to a stage when you can make a decision, there's so many, which one do you make? And that can be as stressful as not being able to make one at all. Yeah, feeling trapped. It's Mm. different. Yeah, freedom can be a trap for some people depending Mm. on their view of it. Talking about our property market, obviously in Australia, um, housing in the capital cities where it continues to be phenomenally high. And there has been some arguments that viewing property as an investment vehicle versus that fundamental right to have a roof over our heads means that we've created a beast in the inflated market in Australia. And I, I can trace that back to my parents' generation. I think the boomers had a lot of advantages financially. Obviously, they had their own hardships. But that's really where investment properties became a thing. And I think it's created something which feels like we can't put the genie back in the bottle, but is it a problem we need to address and how would we address it? It's a good good question. Look, I think that property has always been an incredibly successful sector in Australia. It was before it is now and it will continue to be in the future. And you only have to look at the ASX listed 200 companies to see how significantly property features in those. I think to be fair on Aussies, it's definitely still a bit of a dream to own real estate. And sure, the next stage after owning a home is to buy an investment property. It is a big liability, but it's an asset. So I don't. I feel like that this is something will continue. I, I have no doubt that it will continue. I, I think that the expectations on people will continue to own property. Is it getting harder? I think it is getting harder. But you need, again, you need to make choices. Is it the shelter or roof over your head versus some other type of lifestyle or being at the you know on the receiving end of a landlord I guess yeah, there's all the choices I think, that and I think some people feel like they don't have a choice because you know if they now post lockdowns you know a lot of people have realized that they can't do sea change tree change and work from Byron Bay if your head office is in Sydney and they need to be in a city and if you're paying you know 50% or more of your income in rent I don't know how you would ever 
say, but I'm not a big fan of the bank and mum of dad. I know that that seems to be how a lot of people get there. But even that to me creates inflationary pressure because you go to auctions and you see, you know, people who are older than you and I and Mm -hmm. uh, they're helping their kids and that's great, but they've got deep pockets and so then it becomes this ongoing Yeah, it's not a level playing field. So it is tough. And I remember turning up at auctions when I was in my mid to late 20s and seeing parents there then thinking, I've got no chance here. I don't yeah. have the bank of mum and dad. And, and people are increasingly relying on that. And, in fact, I was asked the question the other day about, you know, when do people retire and how much they need to retire mm. on. And the reality is that that is getting further out, not necessarily because of the cost of living, but the overarching theme is that because of an increased cost of living and the interest rates, for example, is people are helping their kids more, people are staying at home longer. So if you're the kind of parent who's going to help your kids out, then you're likely to work longer. <laughs> Naturally. And you can't downsize if you've got these no, adult no, children living at home. You can't. We've been talking to our kids about it. The eldest one thinks we should go. The youngest one's like, no, no way. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, it's yes. difficult. It's a different era in some ways. Yes. I want to ask you something quite personal now. The best and the worst financial decision you have ever made and why? Uh, you know, that's a tough question because it would be rude of me to suggest that I don't know that I've made any. I was going to um, say, I know you're very astute so with money. I'm going to give you a really uh, silly we're one. We're all human. <laughs> I did make was I bought a secondhand car that was a lemon and it was the oh. worst thing I ever did. Was it a luxury car, can I ask? It was actually. In fact, it was an Audi and I don't know what I was thinking and it was the worst decision I made. But actually the other one, of course, which I didn't make, was getting divorced. So mm. perhaps that wasn't the answer you're expecting, but it was no. most costly. It was probably the best thing for me f- from a life perspective, but it was most costly financially. So, you know, but you can't make it, you can't decide when you marry someone in your 20s that it was a bad decision. No, and, and look, it's very common, I was of in course, love. these That's days. That's how it worked. Exactly. Yes. What about your best financial decision? Uh, well, I'm going to go back to your previous question, property. Yeah. So I've been in the property market. I've st- I ha- I actually grew up appreciating debt. So what I mean by that is my parents actually did encourage debt. In fact, my dad used to say without it, you can't get ahead. So that was sort of like a bit of our money story as I was growing mm, up. That's so interesting. I, that's yes, quite sort of counterintuitive to what I thought you were going to tell me. No, no. Well, actually, on the contrary. So I might have had my first cent I ever earned, my fa- father would say, until I got divorced. But property was always a thing. So I always geared up um, from a debt perspective. I um, still do even today. But I've been, look, I know we've been on the back of a pretty amazing wave property-wise, so I'd love to take credit for it. But I have taken advice. I have bought in blue chip areas. Mm. So there's things that I've done. It's wise spending, not maybe silly spending. So uh, again, taking advice in a particular area I don't know that well. Obviously, I've gone to people, buyers, agents, for example, to help yeah. me make the right decision. Yeah, absolutely. I love mm. buyers agents. I wouldn't. I we bought yeah. a house a couple of years ago. We've moved to the Central Coast, um, and we used a buyers agent because it was locked down and it was crazy, and everyone was trying to buy up here. And um, I would never not use one. The money and yeah. time we saved it was incredible. Yes. Even though it costs money, yes. it's like every week it was going up ten percent that we were waiting. So that money was, you know, they found something in eight days, and That's it was right. life changing. And they have the experts around them. So it's like all that due diligence again, um, all that like the particular reports you need, they've got the network to help get those done quickly and efficiently. Some people will go through this process without getting expert building reports. Oh, that's crazy. Yeah, so it happens. Absolutely. So what's the best general life or business advice that you have ever been given and why? Uh, Well, I've been given a lot of advice in my life. (laughs) And look, you can't be in 
professional services for 30 years and not be given plenty of advice or feedback. But for me, over my career, I think the best thing I've had or chosen is mentors. And over as I've got older or progressed in my career where I've sort of outgrown some of my mentors, I've then moved on to having coaches. And Mm. I just think any problem can be solved with a group of people or more than one. So for me, having a sounding board has just been the most essential thing. So I don't know if I was given the advice to get a mentor, but it seemed to be the way to go when I was coming through my career and it had served me very well. Absolutely. And I do encourage that of all my mm. young team as well to not necessarily find me, but find somebody else, you know, who can can actually help you. And yeah. like you say, you do outgrow those people, but at the time yeah. that advice can be really life-changing. Yes. In fact, even from the youngest age, when I was at school, a family friend had a, a big factory near my school and he used to leave at quarter to seven in the morning. And rather than get the bus and take an hour to get to school, I would get up early and go with him And he was a great business owner. And so we would spend the half hour in the car trip and he was actually mentoring me as a kid who's at school. Amazing. And you don't even realise it, right? You're just having a chat. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. But I could tell how over time that influenced me and he was a very dear family friend to me. And I guess just throughout life I've progressed in a similar way with seeking mentors to provide that guidance and support. Obviously writing a book like you have is quite pivotal, but if we spoke again in a year's time, what would be your next number one goal to have achieved and why? Okay, well, this is a tough one for me. It's to actually have three months in Europe next year and that's after all of, we've got five sons, so that's after the youngest finishes his HSC this year. So it's kind of like a bit of a reward talking about that sort of making it fun before. But also to do that without feeling stressed about business and earning an income, which is something that I still think about. So uh, it all comes down to the planning and working out what are the commitments are going to make while I'm away because I'm not going away and downing tools. I just don't have a business or clients that work that way. I'm Mm. a personal advisor, so that means people can contact you. So, uh, yeah, I think the main thing for me will be just doing that successfully. Absolutely. Oh, we could do your own four-day work week maybe. That's a bit of a trend. (laughs) Yeah, that might be a bit much in Europe. (laughs) <laughs> four days way too much less. I'd say yes, how, about the, how about the four hour work week yes I think now you're talking that's the book yes. we need yes as we wrap up our conversation today what would be your final takeaway message for us all on the politics of money worries well the number one message I think is that people need to take money seriously and I want people to be accountable I don't want people to delegate money responsibilities in their household to someone else So there's a huge risk that your own financial literacy drops off a cliff or has. In fact, in Australia, it's gone backwards across all age groups. So it's really important that people take money seriously. And I don't mean in a way to stress them out, but actually to gear up and build their skills to help themselves. I think that's great advice. And if you do want to connect further with Jackie Clark, of course, there's details on the show notes. Until next time, take care. Thanks, Jackie, for being my guest. Thanks, Amber. Thanks so much for listening today. If you've enjoyed the politics of everything, I thrive on your feedback. So please add a short review and share the podcast with your network through Apple, Spotify and all the usual suspects. I'm always on the hunt for new and diverse guests. So if you or someone you know has a fresh idea you're busting to get out there, please email me at amber at amberdanes.com and my crew will get back to you very soon.